The controversy around the Secret Service's missing text messages from the January 6th Capitol break-in have cast a spotlight on electronic record-keeping in government. Agencies are looking for ways to more easily preserve an expanding variety of digital messages. The National Archives and Records Administration is considering some new solutions. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the former director of litigation at the archives, Jason Barron. The world of electronic messaging today in 2022 is different than it has been for a few decades. When I started in government, working at the Justice Department through the 1990s, email was king. And there was a policy to print out emails as government records and put them in traditional files for a long time. That changed in 2016 with a policy we'll get into called Capstone. So that in most government components, email is taken care of by archiving. But the world of electronic messaging now includes all sorts of other applications. It includes texting. It includes ephemeral apps like Confide and Signal and Telegram, that some of which self-destruct as soon as a sender gets a message or they are configurable. And then there's WhatsApp and Slack and all sorts of other products. I'm not endorsing any. It's just that there's a world of commercial products. So how does an agency handle that? This is an area where the technology is outpacing the law. In 2014, Congress amended and updated the Presidential Records Act and the Federal Records Act. And each of those acts now has a provision where the statute says that there's a requirement that official business conducted using non-official electronic messaging accounts be accounted for. And so individual officers or employees of agencies may not create or send records using non-official electronic messaging accounts unless they copy the message to a essentially a .gov account or forward a message to a .gov account within 20 days. Now, this 2014 statute is premised on the idea that the individual employee or officer or senior official will do the right thing with respect to texts and ephemeral apps that they use, that they will take steps to copy, forward, screenshot, whatever means that the agency might have set up for them to do that. But many agencies have not provided the technology to help employees comply with record-keeping laws by a mechanism for automated capture. So it's left to the individuals to be record-keepers. We know, whether it's a Secret Service agent or a DHS official or an official at the Pentagon or in any other agency, people are too busy carrying out their jobs every day. They don't wake up in the morning and say, I will be the best record keeper ever. You know, they just want to do the best job they can in fulfilling the mission of the agency and and what they're expected to do. And so leaving it to the employee to make sure that all the texts and all the electronic messages that constitute government business are properly copied or forwarded, that's aspirational. Yeah, and you mentioned there's an automated way to capture email that I I guess most agencies are leveraging. Does that same technology exist for text messages and other messaging apps so that, to your point, individuals don't have to go through and screenshot or share their iMessages or whatever it might be? 
there are more mature technologies and services, software involved for email. That's a well-known set of processes, workflows that enable the capstone email policy, which sets out that email at senior officials level is permanent and everybody else's is kept for seven years. So that technology is there. You asked about messaging and whether it would be the same or different. It would be different because the nature of these apps and texts would require different software to capture what are point-to-point encrypted messages in the case of ephemeral apps and for texting. But some agencies have that archiving in place, that automatic capture. It is not Star Wars. We're not talking about something that is not invented there. The thing is, is that not every electronic messaging app that you could download to a phone or to another device allows for kind of enterprise-wide archiving. And so it's incumbent on agencies. Each agency should look at the available commercial space. And I would recommend choosing one or more apps and also figuring out how to archive text using available software to ensure that one or more of these electronic messaging services allow for the capture of messages relating for, to government business in an archive just like Capstone. In fact, I would argue that they should be added to Capstone, and we can talk about NARA saying that. So I think there is software out there that can help solve this problem. Got it. And yeah, as you as you alluded to, we just heard NARA's Chief Records Officer Lawrence Brewer say at the 930 Gov conference that NARA does want to extend the capstone approach to these other forms of electronic messaging beyond email. How would that work? Tell us a little bit more about how that would work, how that might achieve some of these bigger goals in practice. NARA has recognized for a long time in bulletins and other guidance to agencies that there's a range of electronic messaging that exists out there. So you can look at a bulletin that says that chat and texting and other forms of messaging can be records if they relate to government business. What was interesting is that Lawrence Brewer committed NARA to issuing further guidance that would encourage agencies that have adopted the capstone email policy for archiving emails to expand capstone to include other forms of electronic messaging. At the dawn of this, you know, I was arguing that capstone should include all records of senior officials, ideally, and that as an intermediate step, we would at NARA include email because that's the low-hanging fruit and the most vexing problem for the government in terms of records. So I am heartened that there's an expansion of Capstone contemplated by NARA to encourage agencies to incorporate electronic messages. Because what we're talking about is preserving the highest level of email and hopefully electronic messaging in the future, texts and messages and apps, of senior officials of government. All of that makes government more transparent and more accountable. So today in 2022, there are millions, there are tens of millions of emails that are in agency repositories that are subject to FOIA and that will be preserved permanently at the National Archives. And and there'll be an even greater number that will be residing in agency repositories for seven years under Capstone for all of the employees that are not senior employees. But this is a huge step forward for email preservation. And now NARA talking about messaging preservation as part of Capstone will go much further. 
Jason Barron, professor at the University of Maryland's iSchool and former director of litigation at the National Archives, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. 
Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say as I moved on, my appreciation for Taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, 
that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.